Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. Lord, we, uh, we do ask that in this brief time we have, that you'd open up, our, open up our eyes, open up our hearts and our minds to the glory of God in the face of Christ. Uh, thank you for your word that is a, a lamp unto our feet, a light unto our path. It convicts, it corrects, it trains, it instructs, and for everyone who is in Christ, it, uh, it presents us complete in him, equipped for every good work. So would you do your work through your word this morning? Um, God, I pray that you'd allow me to be a conduit of grace to your people, these people that I love. And, and we thank you that we're forgiven through Jesus. Thank, thankful that we have life in his name freedom in his name, purpose in his name. And so our boast, our pride is in him and in him alone, not in ourselves, not in our pedigree or our background or personality or gifts, but we make our boast in Christ and in Christ alone. So Father, magnify your name through the preaching of your word, the preaching of your son. Uh, Spirit of God, would you help us to see the things we need to see this morning? In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Good morning, everybody. Good to see you. Uh, you can flip to the book of Second Peter, which is toward the end of your Bible. It goes First and Second Peter, 1 through 3, John, and then Jude and Revelation. Real quickly before we dive into God's Word, um, you know, Steve did such a wonderful job doing announcements a second ago, and behind his polished presentation is, is a clown, like... Steve actually was at the uh, Halloween fest with many of us, like 25 or 30 of us, and Steve was dressed up as, it was a mix between Groucho Marx, Don King, and Albert Einstein, um, and played games with kids, and it was fantastic. We had about 30 people who came out to Maids Park just down the street from us, and my guess is there were probably 1,500 people that came through. It was pretty substantial, the amount of people that came by, and um, our community outreach team uh, did a fantastic job just being in a space, we're handing out Bibles, interacting with people. I probably had a dozen conversations with people in our neighborhood that I'd never met before. I just kind of being there. So it was really fruitful. Uh, we had three face painters who worked like overtime, probably at Carpal Tunnel and cramping up a little bit this morning. Jody and Heather and Cassidy, I think, had that responsibility. So please be praying just from fruit from that time. Many of them were invited to our chili cook-off. And we're praying that we'll just have more and more time just to gain visibility and trust with our neighbors. But thanks to, to those of you who played a part in that and served in that. It was such a blessing to be with you. As you flip to Second Peter, we're, uh, we started our study through the book of Second Peter last week. And for those of you who are new to Crossway, uh, we make it our pattern to preach verse by verse through books of the Bible. We're in Second Peter. We preached through First Peter uh, months ago, and it was a sweet journey. We did a topical series, and now we're in Second Peter. And so I don't know if you've you had the experience, you know, maybe for some of us is in elementary school, it could be later in life. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand if it's the case, but where you, you grabbed some type of flower and you, one by one, you pulled the petals off. You know where I'm going with this? And you said something as you pulled those petals off, like he or she loves me, he loves me. All right, you've been there too. Okay. I'm not the only one. Um, I don't, maybe I've done that in my past. I'm sure. I'm just guessing I did when I was younger. But, um, but we uh, we long for assurance, particularly as it relates to whether or not someone loves us. Like, and we long for assurance in our relationship with people, and that's a a funny way to kind of capture 
um, a really deep, like profoundly deep and significant longing of the human heart. And when it comes to our faith in Christ and our relationship to God, there's probably no more significant way in which we need to feel the assurance that we belong to him. And so the, this first chapter of Second Peter um, mingles together for us two things that if, if we don't camp long enough may seem like they contradict one another. The, the sovereignty of God and his purposing and willing in our lives to call us to himself and us by our own responsibility working out our salvation with effort and with diligence. Both of those things, I would say, firstly, the, the work of God and calling his people to himself, causing us to be born again. That's what Peter says in the book of First Peter. We see that word in Second Peter as well, that through faith we've received a righteousness that is Jesus's and he's, he's given to us through faith in him. We've been called to his own glory and excellence. We saw that last week. And this morning we're going to see, in some ways, kind of the second part of this recipe for assurance. Namely, that we don't, we don't work for the grace of God, but as the people of God, we work hard by the grace of God. And there's an assurance that, that happens as we work out our salvation with fear and trembling. It comes in knowing that God, like in John chapter 10, Jesus says, there's no one greater than my Father. There's no one that's going to snatch my people out of his hand. And those, my children, are, I'm going to raise them up on the last day. There's assurance all over the place in the Bible based on God's initiative in the lives of his people. And we'll see words like election and calling even this morning. Deep theological waters, but provide us Assurance. I mentioned last week that in this space, oftentimes we can kind of relegate these principles theologically to a place of controversy when really scripturally they're meant to comfort the heart of the believer. And so I pray that you'd be comforted, but I pray that for us as God's people that we wouldn't be sluggish to godliness. Some of what we should feel from this text this morning is, is a sense of like a nudge from the Spirit of God is don't be apathetic to godliness. Be diligent. Work hard by the grace of God to, to demonstrate that you belong to him, that his grace within you is real, and let it show through the outworking of your own life. So we're going to read in 2 Peter chapter 1. We're going to reread verses 3 through 4, and then we're going to carry through to verse 11, which is where we'll stop today. So why don't you join with me as we read. 2 Peter 1, 3 through 11. This is God's Word for us. It says, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence, by which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours 
and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. There is a whole lot in this section. And we could preach sermons just on self-control or righteousness or brotherly love or love. And so what we're going to do is we're going to look at all those words as like this chain, like a chain of spiritual fruit that leads us to a place of confidence and assurance in our relationship with God. I think that seems to be the motivation of Peter. It's not that we just kind of isolate these things and talk about, we'll talk about them in a little bit of isolation, but view them quite literally like a chain, a ladder maybe of sorts to move in progression to godliness. And with each step, there's an increasing of confidence and assurance that we belong to God, that his work is effectual in our lives because we're becoming more and more like Jesus. So Peter says, for this very reason, because by faith you receive the righteousness of Christ, because you've been given God's power for life and godliness. Remember that promise from last week? You've been given everything you need for life and godliness. There's nothing that you lack to live like Jesus if you're a Christian. What sweet and precious promise that is. There's never a day, believer, you can wake up and, and just believe that somehow, some particular sin, you don't have any choice but just to give into because you're not a slave to sin anymore. You're a slave to righteousness. You're alive in Christ. He's given you everything you need for life and godliness because through his power and through his promises, you now share in his nature. So Peter says, for these, for this very reason, all those things I just mentioned, get to work. Make every effort to supplement your faith, to supplement your faith. We don't work hard for the grace of God, but we work hard by the grace of God. By faith alone, by grace alone, in Christ alone, we're saved from the wrath of God, made righteous in the sight of God. Praise be to God for that. We stand before Jesus at the end of our days, clothed in his righteousness, not the works of the flesh. And that position is assured forever. We've been called by name, but once we come to know Jesus, we have a life to live. That's where we are right now. We have a life to live here. And this little while we call life, this momentary light affliction, we have a life to live here. And so this moment in this text tells us that we're to be ones who work out the grace of God within us. Peter gives us a picture of a life that's lived to please God, to bear fruit as a Christian, and it takes effort. In fact, there's a way our diligence over the course of our lives will be evidence that we belong to God. In verse 10, which is kind of at the tail end of our verses, that's why he says, therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent. There's that picture of work to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. In this section, we see, like in many other places in the Bible, this combination, this mysterious combination of the sovereign working of God, calling and election, calling people by name, giving blind men and women eyes to see, 
Jesus said in John 6, that no one comes to the Father unless, unless, I, unless he's drawn. No one comes to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. There's deep theological waters of calling and election. We see it in 1 Peter chapter 1. We see it in Ephesians chapter 1. We see it all over the place. That were it not for the grace of God softening our hearts, we would rebel and be turned away from him still. But work it out. Work out your salvation with fear and with trembling. Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13, it says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. One commentator talked about in this setting in the first century, it seems like Peter's maybe drawing upon through his word, which is to add to faith, to supplement faith. He's drawing from this picture of Athenian drama festivals where there was someone called the Karegos, which is part of the word he uses for ad. Someone called the Karegos who would, who would supply the money needed for a drama, but not just supply it, they would actually participate in its working out. They'd be a part of the drama itself. And so the point is this, is that God has started a work in you and you are to work it out. There is a costly and generous cooperation that the people of God have with the work of God in our lives. And it does cost something, doesn't it? I was talking to Haley about this yesterday. The cost of discipleship. If I could just take maybe a brief side road. Disciple means follower. And the Christian faith, central to our pursuit and our mission is to make disciples, followers of Jesus. But make no mistake about it, if you're not growing as a disciple of Christ, you will be discipled by the world. It will commend you to follow them or it. And so this text is saying, let's follow the ways and the works of God. Furnish your faith with fruit. Add to your faith, not positionally, but practically work it out. Furnish your faith with fruit. Michael Green said it this way. He says, the Christian must engage in this sort of cooperation with God and the production of a Christian life, which is a credit ultimately to God. And I think we can be a little bit uncomfortable with this idea of putting in work. But again, it's not working for salvation. It's working out our salvation. And if we somehow diminish the fact that we're called to work out our salvation, then where is the grace of God going to be seen? Where's the power of Jesus to raise the dead going to be seen if it's not seen in his people? It's in us, the people of God, these peculiar pilgrims living in this in-between time, trying to make him known through our lives and our words and our witness and our satisfaction in Jesus. And following this list of words is that chain of sorts. They build upon one another, a chain that's like a chain literally that you put around the neck of salvation that adorns the doctrine of God. You see that in Paul's letter to Titus. Through our behavior, we adorn like some sort of garnish the work that God has started in us. And the first word he talks about is virtue, excellence, goodness, a fitting expression for something. I'm going to date myself a little bit here. How many of you remember Ginsu Knives? It's like 80s maybe 90s if it was a rerun or something. With Ginsu knives, there were these infomercial knives, and you'd go from like, this person would be cutting like the middle of a tennis shoe, which I don't know why you'd have to do that. And then they go straight to cutting a tomato. It's still sharp after cutting through a Reebok. You still cut a tomato. And it's this whole, like, hey, these things are effective in cutting. 
But that's the picture of virtue, like Ginsu knives. The virtue of excellence for a Ginsu knife is to cut. The virtue for the believer is to live out a life of excellence that's congruent with the life of Jesus. Virtue, add to your faith virtue and excellence in the Christian life. You guys know this just as well as I do. The world is tenacious in its audacity in portraying and perpetrating sin and evil. And maybe a question we should ask, are we as tenacious in living out lives of excellence, not for our salvation, but because of our salvation? Does the world see something different in you than it sees in the world? Add virtue to your faith to display the life of Jesus within you and to virtue add knowledge. So one of the mega themes, I mentioned this last week of this book, is knowledge. You see some four times in just 11 verses, Peter talked about knowledge, the knowledge of Jesus. He says to grow in knowledge, virtue, and then knowledge. And one of the things that he was having to deal with was, many of you have heard about this, is Gnosticism. One of the, the biggest enemies to the theological center of the early church was Gnosticism. And basically, Gnosticism was essentially this. It was the belief that truth couldn't be apprehended by any sort of objective revelation from God or any other person or from rational thought, that it was left to those who had this mystical sort of intuition. So it was left to the only ones who really possessed wisdom was this kind of finely tuned few who possess this mystical sort of wisdom. And so Peter is going to the jugular of this notion. He's like, knowledge is to be found. Accurate, experiential knowledge is found in the Word of God, which we'll see more next week, and in the Son of God. Know Jesus and grow in that knowledge of Jesus. And the book ends in 2 Peter 3.18. You can go there with me. Just flip one page probably to your right, depending on what size Bible you have. 2 Peter 3.18, the book ends with this, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. So maybe the most practical question we can ask ourselves is are we growing in our knowledge of God? Do we sit at his feet listening to his word? Like one of the things I get most convicted about in my own life, my own pattern, my own struggles, is that often I can, I can confuse my doing things for God with my devotion to God. You've heard the story of Mary and Martha probably, right? Two sisters, one sitting at the feet of Jesus, listening to his word, the other preparing things for Jesus when he's, just, he's right in the next room. And Mary's like, hey, or Martha's like, hey, can you get my sister to help me? And Jesus is like, no, she chose the, she's chosen the good part. It won't be taken from her. The good part wasn't doing things for Jesus. It was being with him. Are you with Jesus? Getting to know him? Increasing your knowledge of him? Like last week we talked about, that guy I told you about, that he wrote out every letter of the New Testament, had his secretary put it in the mail to himself so he could open up each letter as if it was written just for him. Do you open your Bible as if it's written just for you? Because it is. It's written for you, that you might know him more and more and more. Not just knowledge to impress your friends. Knowledge to secure your heart, to grow in your love for him, 
to feel secure in your relationship to him. Because the more we know him, the more we love him, the more we feel subjectively the security that God promises to his people. Increasing in the knowledge of God. Be a student of the word. Listen to what he says. Obey what he says. Make his promises precious to you. Self-control. Peter calls out falses in this letter, in part by calling out their lack of self-control. You can look in chapter 2, verse 10. We'll get there in a couple weeks. He says, and especially those, speaking of the false teachers, who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. Chapter 3, verse 3 says, those false teachers follow their own sinful desires. Like even the term self-control, if you've used it, you've studied it, you've thought about it, it confronts us, right? Because it uses the word control. The notion is that there, is, there are things that control us, that dominate our thinking and our life, our passions. Self-control involves being ruled by the Spirit of God and ridding yourself of fleshly desires. You see this in Romans chapter 8. You see in Galatians chapter 5, which is the famous kind of fruits of the Spirit passage. In Galatians chapter 5, says this, says, but I say, walk by the Spirit, you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Verse 24, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Can I ask you a practical question? Is there any passion that controls you? I mean, quite literally, it controls you. It controls your emotions, like your motives. It has your time and your affections. Is there any sort of desire of this world that dominates your thinking? Is there any passion you depend on for joy? There's two things I was praying about this this week that I think we need to hear. We talked about this a little bit in the Facing Temptation message in our topical series. There's a way in which like in facing temptation and trying to live in godliness, we have to starve our flesh. Starve yourself from the things that wage war against the spirit. Don't make any provision for your flesh in regard to the lust that war against the Spirit of God within you. You have to starve your flesh. Put it away. And you have to sustain yourself with that which really satisfies. There really is a, a call to a superior satisfaction. It's not putting away that which actually is what's best. It's that which is a distant second. That which is a fraudulent source of satisfaction to put your eyes, your mind, your hands to that which truly satisfies. Remember John 4, the woman at the well? Jesus kind of gives this picture in the earth. He's like, hey, the water in this well is just going to leave you thirsty again. But drink from me, the water that I provide. Because you know what? If you drink the water that I provide, from your innermost being will flow rivers of living water welling up to eternity. You'll never be thirsty again. Are you thirsting for things in this world? Am I thirsting for things in this world that just leave me thirsty again? Self-control. The next one is perseverance or steadfastness. As those who come under the control of the Spirit continue to stay on that path, remain there, get back up when you fall. <clears throat> Mr. Bays and I were talking last night. He was just recalling to me, just sharing his own story of walking with Jesus all these years. Mr. Beji shared with me just the, the joy of knowing that in all the moments where 
where we have fallen, that God has been faithful still, right? Even when we lack faith, when we're unfaithful, God is faithful because he can't deny himself. So when you fall, get back up. Look to Christ again. Remind yourself of the promise of the gospel again. Quite literally, because we're going to stumble, we're going to fall, we're going to fail, we're going to choose to pursue the things of this world as opposed to God. Get back up. Walk with Jesus. He's worth it. And all the while you can hear him saying, just don't stop. Get back up. I'm with you. I've always been with you. You have everything you need for life and godliness. Get up. Everything you need have been given to, has been given to you by Jesus through his divine power, his precious promises. So persevere. True Christian faith endures. It conquers in the end. And ultimately, our steadfastness isn't based merely on the strength of our faith, is it? It's based on the object of our faith. He's the one who's constant and faithful even when we lack faith he remains faithful he'll hold us fast so we can remain in him until the end so Peter's already told us we've been given everything we need for life and godliness and having been given everything we need for godliness it should be increasing in our lives and that's the next thing he says godliness is this reverence and respect for God and the things of God in this life acknowledging acknowledging him in all ways in your life not just mere religious adherence. There's all sorts of people without the Spirit of God that are religious, that do certain things. They make vows with their lips all the time. They're full of rules, but they're void of a love for God that compels them to be conformed to His image. This is not just some adherence to a list of do's and don'ts. This is, I love God and I want to look more like Him. His law is quite literally like honey to me. Like the psalmist says, when I eat it, it's like precious to me. It's like honey from the honeycomb. It drips with sweetness. It's like my very life. One of the questions I found myself asking this week, just considering this call to grow in godliness, is do I consider becoming more like Jesus a worthy pursuit in my life? Is it worth my time? And we say theologically, of course, but practically is that do we have a life given to that pursuit that says that it's worth my time and my energy and my devotion and my diligence? Do I see it as a worthy pursuit to be like him in his humility, in his heart of service, in his love for others, his submission to the Father, his passion for the Father's glory, his graciousness and forgiveness, his bold proclamation of the truth, his commitment to his mission. Do I see those things as a worthy pursuit? And next, Peter draws our attention. The chief among the evidence of our reverence to God is our love for other people. So closely are these two things linked that Jesus' summary of the law was loving God and the other one that's like it, namely loving others, right? So brotherly affection is to be added to our faith. 1 John 4, 19 through 21. John says this, we love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen 
cannot love God who he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. And there's a notion out there, and some of it's because there's been real pain in churches that you can love Jesus, but uh, as far as his people goes, I mean, I could take them or leave them. But you, when you've been made a part of the family of God, you automatically have brothers and sisters. It's actually not our choice as to whether or not we can love or should love the people of God. If you're a part of the family of God, you have brothers and sisters. They may not look a whole lot like you, come from different areas, backgrounds, ethnicities, but they're your family. And you're called to love them. What's interesting about these two words, brotherly affection and love, is that love, the second of the two, is that agape, biblical, godly love. It's a choice to love those. And there's some people in your life, you know who I'm talking about, you have to choose to love them. Nobody has those people in your life? You have to choose out of obedience to God and your love for God to love other people. But there's also this call to grow in affection. Philadelphia is the brotherly affection, a phileo love, a friendship love. And if you devoted your life to being community, you'll find yourself affectionate toward people you'd never be hanging out with apart from Jesus. But you grow to love them, even though they're different. Why? Because you have been devoted to that which matters to the heart of God. Enable you to be and to do and to love in ways that don't come naturally to you. In verse 8, Peter says, if these qualities, this chain of spiritual fruit are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. As I was reading a fair number of commentaries this week, you know, Peter's wording here is so strong that it's actually difficult to discern if he's talking about a Christian or a non-Christian. So what I want to do just for a moment, because I think it's always appropriate in a room this size, is not to make any assumptions about where you are with Jesus. And one of the things I want to speak to, because this text is one of the ways in which we could apply this text, is that there will be a whole lot of people when they meet God face to face who believe that they knew Jesus on this side and will find out that they never knew him. Matthew 7 is probably the scariest chapter in all the Bible because it depicts that very reality. And, and right before the depiction of meeting God in verse 18 in chapter 7, I'll read this, it says, a healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. And Jesus says this, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. And on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Now this is, this is jarring. Because there will be many who believe they've lived a life given to maybe religious adherence. In some measure, you see the depiction in the Bible in more places than this, that there are some who have an initial, they exhibit some response to the gospel and to Jesus. But whether it be the cares of this world or tribulation or loving the things of the world, their faith ultimately proves not to be genuine. And so the, the biggest response that you can have is make sure 
confirm that you belong to God by pursuing him your whole life. That's what this text is saying. There's a way in which, and this is the other application, there's, there's a way in which for the believer, for the genuine born-again Christian, there will be some Christians who stumble so much through this life and don't pursue God and the things of God, they'll get to the end and wonder if they're going to get into heaven. Doubting along all the way whether or not they belong to God because they've never given time to grabbing each rung of this ladder, growing in these things, being diligent to grow in their relationship to God. And so there's an assurance that's lost because of that. And this ineffective or unfruitful, there's a possibility of knowing Jesus but realizing in the end that you have been ineffective or unfruitful for him in your life. So in that sense, the grace of God has proven to be vain to even this particular child of God who knows Christ. 1 Corinthians 15.10, Paul put, puts it this way. He says, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. Why? On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. Though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. As Peter goes on to say, for whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he's blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. A lack of these qualities, a failure to grow in grace, is owing to being nearsighted, unable to see beyond this life to the next, unable to break free from captivity to sin and striving for the things of heaven. Instead of walking in the heavenly power God has given to his people, we forget our freedom and walk right back into slavery. We're nearsighted. I used this picture years ago. My, my girls were a little bit younger and playing soccer. There's one experience I had. I think it was with Hope when she was playing soccer. If you've had kids playing soccer, you'll know what I'm talking about. Kids love to play soccer initially because of the snacks after the game. That's the only reason they play. They want to know what it is, and they want to know before they even step out on the field. Like, what's the snack afterward? In this particular game, there was cupcakes, which is top shelf, right? I mean, you get a cupcake after playing soccer. And I remember... Hope was at an age, I think she was maybe three or four, um, and she got a cupcake, and, and I, can, I can still picture her this day. She was down here about this high. I, I could grab her head like this, and I had to, quite literally, because she was staring at this cupcake. And the only thing that she could see was the cupcake. And so she would have walked into people or into a fence, and so I had to literally turn her head just to steer her from danger. But that's the picture in this text. Whatever this is, the cares of this world, the love for the things of this world, so captivate us that we can't see beyond them. You know what happens? And I've seen this in people that I love in this body, outside of this body. And the, one of the tragedies of living the Christian life in this way, where you you're so nearsighted, you can't see the things of heaven. You're not living right now for the things of heaven. It's this right here leads to a life riddled with doubt. Riddled with doubt. And that's the picture at the end of this section. Because what happens for some believers, not pursuing the things of God, stumbling through this life, trapped in the things of this world, around their ankles and struggling to pursue the things of God. What will happen is all the way until the end, they don't know if they belong to God. Barely made it. I barely got through. It's going to feel that way. 
So this broad way of like the entrance into the kingdom of God is going to be richly provided for you. It's, it's like if you're growing in godliness, the opposite is, is true. You're pursuing all these things, virtue and knowledge and steadfastness and self-control, godliness. As you do, it's like the door of heaven just swings wildly open. In my heart, I'm like, surely I belong to God because these things would not be present in me. So this confident assurance of I belong to Jesus, my life has been given to growing, not perfectly, but growing in progression in godliness. It's like this, the doors of heaven swing widely open, not just in the moment, in the future, but now we see him. I belong to him because I see his fruit in my life, his fingerprints in my life. And if you find yourself in a place where you doubt God's love for you, maybe that you're not working hard enough, being diligent to grow in godliness, this section commends and commands us to do that. Make every effort to supplement your faith with this chain of godliness that you might know at the end that you belong to him. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And we'll know in that moment that we have known God and we have grown in grace and all the while and I pray that we'd be a church filled with people who, by the grace of God, know his work within us and we're working it out until our very last breath. Loving him more, growing in grace, for the praise of his name and for the impact that God stands to give us in this community and in this world. Amen? Amen. Let me pray. Let me ask you just to bow your head for a second and just maybe consider, maybe consider in your own life. It's likely for all of us there's some category of life where we know that we haven't with diligence and with effort sought to grow in respect to our salvation and grow in godliness. Maybe it's considering one of those links of the chain. Um, take time to confess. Confession is agreeing with God that it's wrong and repentance is turning from it and turning to God. And so don't move too quickly beyond this moment. Make sure you confess and that you repent. If you're in this room and you've never turned to Jesus in a saving way, then make today the day. There's nothing you can do or ever will do to earn God's love. Jesus is the only one who can provide you forgiveness, the only one who lived righteous. And it's only through his righteousness you'll be accepted in the sight of God. So, Spirit, would you bring, even now, just conviction and clarity as to where we need to grow. God, we know theologically how much we need you, um, that you've made us by yourself and for yourself, that you are God and we are not. And even the breath uh, we breathe is borrowed from you, that we might give it back to you in praise. And 
Help us to be men and women who are dependent upon your grace to move forward in godliness. But I pray as well that you'd put within us an earnestness, a desire to put in deep and consistent effort and diligence to grow in likeness to Jesus. And I pray that it would be our joy to do just that. What might you do with a people, a church body, given to the things of God? How might you display your grace in the workplaces and the neighborhoods that we live in, the family and friends that we interact with? Make much of yourself. Give us supreme satisfaction in you over the things of the world. It's only by your grace that we are where we are. I pray that we'd work hard so that your grace toward us wouldn't be in vain. We love you. Thank you for the assurance that we have through your work in us. May we just need to bolster that assurance in our own experience through working out our salvation with fear and trembling. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's go ahead and stand together.